everyone and welcome to our next installation of Out on a Limb, y'all. The text we'll be looking at today is Kill the Boy Band by Goldie Moldovsky. I'm Melissa. I'm Damon. I'm Bridget. And I'm Lindsay. Um, I have to say that this week's reading was really interesting for me because the boy band was such a pivotal part of my own adolescent years. I am of the generation that grew up with NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And it was really interesting to come back as a teacher and look at a text like Kill the Boy Band and kind of think about what boy bands mean for adolescent young women and how that's changed since my own teenage years. And so I think we're going to be exploring what that means in this week's episode. I know exactly what you're talking about. I was um, on the first rendition of The New Kids on the Block back in the late 80s early 90s and I remember what that was like as I was like early teenager at that time like 12 13 and it was a big deal if you wore you know a t-shirt you get on the wall oh my god I can't believe you wear a shirt like that so yeah it was it was pivotal it was it was definitely a thing especially you know there was no internet or anything like that so you went by what your peers said to you to your face at school yeah, and I came from the um, the era of uh, NSYNC versus the Backstreet Boys. And it was like almost, it was really a social taboo if you tried to say that you liked both of them. Like, you know, you really needed to pick. You couldn't call yourself a real fan of the Backstreet Boys if you also enjoyed NSYNC, you know. So who did you pick? It plays in a lot yeah. with the texts that we're working with and how they had these very clear ideas. These, these young girls had these very clear ideas of what made you a Rupert's fan and just and how that plays out and kind of the gatekeeping even that goes on. You can be a true fan because you know all of their eye colors and their birthdays and all of this, you know, and you like all of them equally versus, oh, well, you can't, this is kind of our thing. You don't really know enough to really be a part of this. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was really neat how they, and so of course, we're talking about the fictional group, the Ruperts, but as I was reading, I was seeing a lot of parallels to one of our more recent boy band crazes, One Direction. And Damon, I think you have daughters who have grown up in the One Direction age. Is that right? I do. I do. I have, actually I have four girls. And so I have, my oldest is 26. And so she was pretty she was the oldest Wexner's first hit. So is this around 2010 when they were on X Factor? Am I right about that? So she was probably 16, 17 year old, years old then. And she got into it quite a bit. But it's my next three girls that have become just these gigantic fans. And they are, you know, fangirls. Maybe not the kill the boy band, truest sense of the word. But, I mean, they've been to the One Direction concert. In fact, we were talking about this on the way from home from church tonight. Two of my girls have tickets to see Harry in October. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't know that. Okay. That is some social <laughs> capital for your girls. There you I go. I just found out my wife is going with them. I didn't even know that. So I feel like I'm pretty hip, you know, as a as a dad. But I've I've always loved them too. And when my kids were younger and when this is like 2010, 2012, I worked in a church as a youth minister. And I can remember it was just the hugest thing. And that, along with another huge craze that we haven't talked much about, but the uh, the high school musical thing, 
uh, just it was just this gigantic thing. And I just don't I just was thinking to myself, I don't remember it being like this when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Of course, I'm a guy. And so maybe my experience is a little different because I'm a guy. But, man, I'm a huge music fan. I was a huge, you know, Michael Jackson fan, Prince fan. But I don't remember boy bands the way we have them now, the way they came with, when we got new kids on the block. That's the first one I really remember. But before that, we had these big hair bands. And everybody loved bands like Poison or Def Leppard. And uh, and then there was Duran Duran. I guess they were more of a boy band. It wasn't cool for me to like Duran Duran publicly. But I <laughs> love them. I love Duran. I can say it now. I love them. But my girls, it's just taken on a whole nother level. And uh, I'm just really surprised to see all these connections between what we've been reading in this book. And then... Uh, I'm, I'm not really scared, but I mean, I'm a little bit like, do I need to go check on my girls? You know, <laughs> actually not, you know, because the way that, especially think about the way uh, the narrator, we'll call her Sloan, I guess, the way she was texting her mom all throughout that ordeal. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, oh, that was yeah. shit down my spine. Yeah, that, that, would, that wouldn't fly with this mama. Mm-mm. Now, before we go any further, I have to ask Melissa, Bridget, you said this earlier. Okay. Melissa, were you a... I was a Backstreet Boys. Oh, I was I was not like super fan, but I was Backstreet Boys, and my I was Nick. Although now I'm looking at him, I'm like Kevin. Hello. <laughs> I don't like, remember you know, Nick from the Backstreet Boys. Better, and my 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 tastes have matured. Yeah. But who was Nick in the Backstreet Boys? I don't. Which one was he? He was their lead. Their, basically, kind of their lead singer. He was the blonde with the floppy hair. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, he was. He was basically their tenor. Amazing. They yes. all sang, yes. but you know. Okay. Yes, I remember that. Well, Damon, to what I was going to say when you were talking about, you can't, and I, I'm sure we all could say the same thing about you know our our time of music growing up mm-hmm. when you were saying you don't remember ever it ever being this big. Yeah. Well, there's two words that make um, the big difference: social media. That's I mean, right. if you think about pre-social media mm-hmm. and these big, huge, huge music names, I, I immediately think of the Beatles because yeah. my dad was not a Beatles fan, but he 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 was of that generation. And so I've heard all about, you know, Beatles mania and the British invasion. Mm-hmm. And then I think about um, Michael Jackson. And you think about all the stuff that you have learned when you're, you know, a super fan or a fangirl, you become so obsessed with these people because the difference is you feel like you know them because you have learned, like you said, Lindsay, their eye color, when's their birthday, you know, what's their zodiac sign and all of this. Well, you think about, you know, we can learn as much as we want to about any celebrity now. And so you think about these bands and musicians up before then and it almost makes you wonder had there been social media back on to the Beatles or even Michael Jackson it almost makes you wonder would they have been as big as they were if you had had the access that we do now yeah I, jumping off of that um it was actually interesting to me Damon you said that you were a um, Michael Jackson fan well, one of our secondary re- readings, um, the Asquith um, article about her documentary, Crazy About One Direction, mm-hmm. um, she also talks about the um, documentary that was done, Wacko for Jacko. 
which right. is about Michael Jackson. And I think kind of what Bridget was hitting on is we know so much about One Direction and so much about um, the, the community and the fandom that was created around it because of social media. Back when we had Michael Jackson, you know, there wasn't that connectedness. Um, mm -hmm. There wasn't hashtags that um, these fans could use to follow and to dialogue with each other and kind of map out even like where the, the actual band members were at any given time. The fact that they could just get on their phone and be like, I just saw Zayn Malik um, mm -hmm. and, and literally like give them exact locations to where these young boys were, yeah. you know, just kind of plays out that there wasn't that that vast dialogue and there wasn't that mobility really um, back when we had Michael Jackson or even um, Sync or the Backstreet Boys. And I think there's an interesting, oh, what was the name of that movie? That Michael J. Fox movie that he kept texting the title to. Like Bright and, Lights, Bright Dreams or something oh, like that. Um, Bright, Light, uh, Bright, Bright Lights, Bright Lights, Big City. Bright Lights, Bright Light, Big, Big City. City. When, yeah. when he texted that, she knew immediately that that was signal for her to meet him on the roof. Mm -hmm. And that never could have happened in, you know, in previous times. Yeah, it like it forges a, a sense of intimacy with these boys or young men in these groups so that they they feel like you actually know them. And our narrator talks about that but when she does meet up with Rupert K on the roof. Like she's pretending like she doesn't already know all of these things about yeah. him. So yeah. that she can pretend like it's just some meet cute where she's met this boy and they're yeah. getting to know each other. But really, she has this kind of creepy level of knowledge about him that's been fostered by this false connection that social media promotes. But I think at the same time, while it, it creates that sense of a, a false intimacy with the object of desire, the, the boy band themselves, creates a very real sort of social media is creating a very real sense of community among the fans themselves. I talk with my students, so I, I kind of joke and pretend like I'm older than I am. And I'll talk about things like the Snapchat and the Instagram. Yeah. So yeah. I've been playing on the TikTok this week and looking at the TikToks um, mm -hmm. and hashtagging One Direction and kind of diving into that social media world. And one of the things that I found that's so interesting, just watching the TikToks that young women and sometimes young men are making about One Direction, that there's this whole fan community that's connected through social media that forms this kind of group identity that we see in the book as well, um, that it's bringing together personalities that may have otherwise never met and may not have a whole lot else in common besides this love for One Direction. Uh, and so I think social media is creating that sort of community in a way that we haven't seen before as well. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I was, I was thinking of a, a quote um, and I found it. It's on page 141 in Kill the Boy Band. This was next level scandal. And to Isabel, mm -hmm. scandal was the only thing that pulled back the curtain and showed us who our idols truly were. Without the scandal, we only saw something manufactured, created by music execs and publicists. For the first time, I kind of got it. And suddenly I couldn't wait to see the fallout. And so like that's also, it's another layer to that, Lindsay, where you have this community um, built around knowing all of these intimate details. But we, in that point in the, in the novel, we've kind of reached a point where our narrator is kind of starting to not question 
maybe question the boy band, but not her cho chosen boy in yeah. the boy band. Kind of question what is real versus manufactured. You know, how do we get to the to how do we really know these boys and how do we we dialogue with them? You know, we have we have this feeling that we really, really understand them and that somehow they get us and they're singing to us. And and I've chosen this particular boy because um, of X, Y, Z and what that says about me and, and, and about um, my friends and how I see the world. But um, how much of that is actually true when you have a group like One Direction where everything is so heavily mediated? Well, and you know, a lot of people are on the other side of that. They'll look at fans who totally fit the description that you just gave and they think they're crazy. They think they're total psycho. So there's a level of shame, you know, that goes along with that. Just like I described when I wore the Joey McIntyre shirt to school, people were like, oh my gosh, you, you're a, you're a new kids fan. Oh my gosh. And I mean, trust me, I wore that shirt to school one time. <laughs> Nobody forgot that Bridget Moore wore the Joey McIntyre shirt to school. And one thing I really, <laughs> one thing I, uh, totally got about the crazy about one direction article it actually talks about that and um she says fan identities are riddled with internalized shame which is consistently reinforced by the performance of distaste even disgust that largely male critics and distractors display to them because earlier um i think in one of our other other readings it talks about how especially these younger adolescents, you know, 12, 13, 14, they're just starting to feel these hormones and, you know, these certain desires and these groups, mostly male singers are singing just these professions of love and, you know, please don't go girl. And, you know, you don't know you're beautiful and all this kind of stuff. And trust me, I thought Joy McIntyre was singing straight to me over in Rome, Georgia. So I get it. But, people who are a little bit older been there done that a lot of times they look at these girls like are you crazy he's not singing to you but you have to give these fans whether they're super fans who have the t-shirts and the buttons and they've gone to every concert or they're just you know a, i don't know a normal fan you have to give them credit for what they're feeling because those are legitimate feelings and Especially now, if you are, I don't even know what the current boy band is. Um, my eight-year-old could probably tell me. Um, but let's just say you were one of these One Direction fans. Like we see when we look at hashtag Solo Harry's, they, they know all about these people. And, you know, one of the things I saw on hashtag uh, Solo Harry's is there was one of his recent girlfriends, um, Camilla, Camilla Rowe, I think. And after their, their breakup, there was some fallout about um, all of these hashtag solo Harry's were just mortified that, you know, this relationship within and said, oh, she didn't deserve him. But I really like, you know, going back, bringing that back around to the shame, they are ready to fight over who prefers another band member over him or so many people look at these fans and yes, you know, some of the, some of the emotions that they feel are kind of stretched, but they're feeling what they're feeling. And 
it says this encourages secrecy and the anonymity they are afforded online allows for both free expression and a global audiences of like minds for the first time in fandom. So it was like we said before, the social media community and family of those like-minded fans didn't happen until now. Yeah. I think the the shame aspect is a, a really interesting thing to bring up. And looking at it from kind of a psychological perspective, one of the things that we talk about a lot in this podcast series is the, the fact that our teenagers are in a transitional point of their lives. We call it that liminal space. Um, and when we look at things psychologically or even just like physically, we talked a little bit last week about how adolescent brains are largely driven by the amygdalas, emotional responses. And in Kill the Boy Band, when our narrator is hanging out at the bar um, with who she calls Civil War bartender, who's, you know, we think probably a 20 something year old, what we'd call a hipster bartender. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like, disparaging her for being there as a fan of the Ruperts, she says, she kind of dismisses his thoughts and she says, he was just another adult who forgot what it was like to love something so completely. Mm -hmm. And I may have only been a teenager, but I knew a truth that he had never grasped. The joy you find as a teen, however frivolous and dumb, is pure and meaningful. It doesn't matter that it might taste different when you're older. The whole point of being a teenager is not worrying about the future. I think that's such a, mm -hmm. a, a strong reminder that that these fictional teenagers, but also our very real teenagers, the the young women who are fans of One Direction, the boy bands, those feelings are real and they're pure. I think it's also in the the McCann and Southerton article talking about repetitions of desire, talks about the fact that in some cases they're just in love with desiring or they're in love with love mm -hmm. and projecting feelings of love or feeling mm -hmm. feelings of love um, is a kind of a safe way to start experimenting with those hormones and those feelings of desire for, for other people that you start experiencing mm -hmm. as a teenager. And I think a lot of that shame that we feel even, you know, for ourselves kind of looking back and laughing at our teenage selves Maybe it is because we've forgotten what it's like right. to be a teenager where mm -hmm. I, I know YOLO is so dated at this point, but you kind of have that very carpe diem. We don't worry about the future, worried about now. And my feelings right now mm -hmm. are very real. Maybe we have forgotten that. Right. And that's where our shame or that, that projected shame when we're like, oh, those, those little teenagers and their One Direction yes. fans or, oh, 15-year-old me with New Direction or NSYNC. Um, new direction, new kids in the block. That's what I meant. So, you know, um, maybe that's where some of it comes from. Maybe our narrator is right. And we're just like civil war bartender and we've forgotten what it's like to yeah. be teenagers. Yeah. I think that quote that you read, it's very similar to one of the ones I picked out. It was one of my favorites. Um, I'm just going to read this. Maybe it was obsession, but it was also happiness. And then listen to this part of the quote. And I think, Lindsay, you might have talked before we came on uh, on camera about the uh, the Frieden article, or maybe it was in the text earlier. Listen to this and think about the Frieden article while I'm reading it. An escape from the suckiness of everyday life. And when you find something makes you happy and giddy and excited every day, us fangirls know a truth that everyone else seems to have mm -hmm. forgotten. 
you hold on to that joy tenaciously for as long as you can. Now, as I'm reading that, it sounds very simple. Was that the exact same quote that you read? I think it's like a paragraph after what I was reading. <laughs> yeah. I have but that I underlined in my book as well. Texted, when you texted earlier about freedom, I was like, that, is hit, that hits the nail on the head because these girls, they know what's coming or they've been told what's coming and it's kind of scary, uh, this, this problem that we don't have a name to or this answer to the question, who am I? You know, I don't want to have to wait to get to that point or I'm just going to enjoy it while I can. And uh, I just thought that that particular moment in the book illustrated it, especially when they were at the bar with the uh, with the with the bartender. And then later you have this uh, I don't know, it's just this moment where you realize Aaron is not the friend that you thought she was. Mm -hmm. And uh, just pulls back the curtain a little bit. And I, I like that reference. And even she uses it in the book, pulls back the curtain a little bit. I feel like the whole book, they're pulling back the curtain on these relationships and how they're not really what they're supposed to be. Uh, not just the relationships between fangirls and, and the boy band, but the girls themselves were finding out that these relationships aren't what we thought they were either. Melissa. Well, and I think it's interesting for that point, Damon, um, that, you know, so many of these relationships, we see it in the um, in the text. Yes. But then also um, just with a lot of the the fandom online, you know, these these girls don't even know each other half the time. Right. You know, they're daily dialoguing with each other, daily talking to each other. And the one thing that brings them together is that band and yeah. kind of that that camaraderie they feel. Um, even if, say, for like Erin, our character, who had her other friends at school that she did things with that were kind of separate from our narrator. And but then when um, the, the narrator talks about when we were in Erin's bedroom, she could be herself. So there may still be that little bit of like shame there, but it's still um, something that they can kind of come together about. Um, actually, a, a paragraph or so above what um, Lindsay was reading um, is another one. It says, I love the Ruperts for who they were, sure, but I mostly love them for how they made me feel, which was happy. The Ruperts made me happy, the simplest thing to be in the world and the hardest. Mm. And so I think even getting down to that is it's not even necessarily the band itself or the thing. It's just the focal point for these girls kind of coming together and creating that friendship, even if it is mediated through um, an online presence, it's that bonding that they're looking for even. I was, I went down the rabbit hole with all these different hashtags. And I mean, y'all, I, I was, I was having babies around the time of One Direction. So I've, I've always been a pop culture junkie, but anything that happened from like 2012 to 2015, I was, was probably sleeping or burping or changing baby or something, maybe having a baby. So I learned a lot about One Direction over the last week or so. And there were terms, I had no idea what they were. And so I'm online looking around and I came across um, an article on a website. What made me think of it the two girls who run this website, I think it's been going on for you know a good while now. They met at a One Direction concert, lived in two completely different parts of the country. Somehow or another, they met at a concert and now they are 
best friends. They've gone mm -hmm. on vacation together and they run this evidently quite successful One Direction website. So, I mean, it, it's not just this tiny little community. I know one of the videos that we had to watch, it was showing like stat after stat after stat. And my eyes about popped out of my head. I thought, oh, oh my gosh, I knew they were a big deal, but yeah, wow. Yeah. And that, that just kind of goes back to that shows you how big this One Direction community or the, the directioners, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a real deal. I mean, you can shame them all you want, but it, it is a real deal. And it is a money-making machine even years after these guys went on a break. I wondered while you guys were watching these videos, particularly the uh, the interview videos. Um, I remember us talking about this in in one of the, uh, the the class meets. But the boys grow up right in front of our eyes, and I think maybe Doctor Nsinga talked about this maybe at the beginning of the class that these boys are going through the same liminal space. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're navigating that space, obviously, in a, in a world that is just being bombarded. Uh, and so it's it's kind of hard to really uh, use them as a test case. But I just thought it was I, I just couldn't believe it because there's just so much stuff. And we just saw, you know, a, a sand, a piece of sand on the beach of what they've gone through in the last you know 10 or 15 years. But I was really taken aback by how just how together they were even in the mm -hmm. beginning it seemed like they were just you know boys and they were awestruck and enjoying the fame but by the end that they're maturing and i just i just thought it was just amazing at how well together they were and how how well they were handling it and i made this comment to my kids and they said that that was not the case at all in fact that one of the reasons that they ended up having to break up and one of the reasons zane left the group was because it was impossible for them to deal with, you know, the stress and just being under that microscope all the time. And I just thought if that's the case. It didn't come across at all in those videos that we watched. Well, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think there's a little bit of both yeah. in that um, Australian, like an Australian Today show. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that they, that they were asked is, is it hard to maintain yourselves and your own private lives in this massive world of fame that they were in. And Harry, Harry said, it's important that we have each other because like we talked about before, you've got these five individuals who yep. make up this band. And I took his response as it's important that we have each other because only the five of us know what right. this is like. You know, the, the only people who could, at all empathize with him was these, these four other guys. And I mean, not their management, not their PR people. Those people, you know, got a front row seat to it, but they, they weren't the ones who um, girls were trying to reach out and grab as they walked past and their posters weren't up on the walls of anybody's room. But I, I did notice that because I've, I kind of saw a little bit of both. Like I said, it's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lindsay. Yeah, I. I think there's the idea that like, they got through this together because they are the people who went through that experience, and I, I think that speaks to that same sense of community that drives 
the directioners to bond mm -hmm. together. You're looking for somebody to go through this liminal space together. And kind of to tie it back to, to Kill the Boy Band, I think it's really interesting, and especially from an educator perspective, to look at it for what happens when, when the band breaks up both like the literal band, mm -hmm. the Ruperts or One Direction. I was also like reading some interviews and watching some interviews that apparently Niall and, and Zane don't really speak anymore, had a falling out, either the other four kind of keep in touch, Niall and Zane don't. And I think as an educator, I see that in my classroom with my students, you know, friend groups who start and form over some kind of shared interest early in high school, by the time senior year rolls around, may not have that same sense of community, that same bond anymore. And so it's like a metaphorical breaking up of the band. And I think in Kill the Boy Band, we see pieces of that as well with the girls and their friendships. And I, I think, again, as an adult, kind of looking at the young women in this book and thinking of my students, it, it's almost like, you know, what, what happens when the band breaks up? What happens when that illusion shatters? And Aaron, I think, is a really compelling and interesting character because we get a sense early on in the book that something is a little bit off. And at first it seems like maybe she's just feeling more of a friendship with Isabel. And so at first I thought the story is maybe just going to be one of my best friend left me for a different best friend, which is a story mm -hmm. I've seen play out in my classroom time and oh, time yeah. again. But then we find out that Aaron has had this encounter with Rupert X at the Dublin concert. She has had sex with him. And there's like multiple levels of illusion breaking for me in that moment. So I think if you parallel with when our narrator meets Rupert K, or does she really meet him? Is it all in her head? Is she a reliable narrator? No. I don't know. But know, you know, when but... she meets up with Rupert K, she rationalizes everything to herself to keep the image she has of Rupert K. But for Aaron, that illusion is shattered. Like mm. her encounter with Rupert mm -hmm. X and finding out that he is not the man of her dreams and she is not, he is not everything that she's built him up to be for her kills the entire image of the boy band. And I think is, is arguably a loss of innocence in the sense of like, she's lost her virginity to him, but also a loss of that pure teenage idealistic love of something. And that does set her apart from the other girls in the group. Isabel apparently has also had some kind of break where she doesn't care about the boy band as much. Apple and our narrator are kind of still in that idealizing phase. But Erin is kind of set aside from the other girls. She's almost leaving the band because she's reached this sort of adult level. And I think it's that when when the narrator finds out that Erin has slept with Rupert X, she's upset, one, because her friend has kept the secret that she met and slept with Rupert X for six months, but also just that she's had sex and hasn't yeah. told her friend that. I think that says something to the way that female friendships or just teenage friendships in general also break up. Like what happens when you know somebody grows up a little bit faster than somebody else? Mm -hmm. How does that affect those friend groups? I think that's also interesting. Like when you think about those friend groups, how they play out and specifically the narrator often couches Aaron herself in, in much the same terms that she does Rupert K. Like there's one point where she says, she threw her head back and laughed and a little thrill went through me at the sound of it. 
Anytime I could get Erin to laugh was a good moment. Anytime I could cause her to be pumped or happy felt awesome, obviously. Mm -hmm. And there's several times where she goes into this, oh, and I'm it was it was driving me crazy that I was still looking at her and realizing how beautiful she is. And there's several moments in the book where you see that from our narrator. And then um, toward the very end, um, she flat out tells Aaron after all of these things have kind of happened, she tells her, you're a life ruiner. You ruin lives, which is the exact terms that she used to describe Rupert K. early mm -hmm. on. In the beginning. He was a life ruiner. He was just the be all end all. Um, and so just kind of the way um, the they kind of pair Aaron and that female relationship with this kind of false idealized relationship of the you know with the band boy member and if you go if you go to the kind of um idea that mccann and southerton show and their repetitions of desire that kind of queering of the the one direction fangirl if you think about the fangirl in those kind of terms um it it kind of puts a whole different lens on how our narrator is looking at both Aaron and the boy band member that she is supposedly in love with and would just die for. I think that's, that's a brilliant point. Um, the, the leaving, the breaking up of the girl band and the boy band and the word that, that uh, she uses when she talks about how the fact, not only does she not tell her about her encounter with Rupert X, but it was her, her first time he didn't talk about it. She called it a betrayal. All right. And it's ironic because it's Rupert X that is the one that is betraying Aaron. Mm -hmm. And then Aaron could not share that with her friend. And that's, you know, that's a whole nother thing to unpack. But I want to close. This will be my closing statement. I have to tell you all my favorite line from the book. <laughs> all right. It's uh, and there were a bunch of them. This book was I really love this book. But when they're up on the roof and he he's talking to her the first time they meet on the roof, Rupert K is talking and she says, his voice, y'all remember what she says? His voice was what? His voice was London butter. Ooh. That was just that just did it for me. That sounds like a good cocktail. That's my, <laughs> that'll be my closing thought for everybody. That's a good one. I like.